The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 11. So John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that towards the end of John chapter 1, we see a major shift, a turning point, where Jesus arrives on the scene and he speaks. And up until that point, it had been John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist who had been pointing us to Christ and telling us about Christ. But then Christ appears and he speaks. And we heard about those five disciples who began to follow him. And now, at the beginning of chapter 2, we see the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of the work that his father had called him to do. We've also seen, as we've considered that first chapter, that the way that John begins the gospel is to remind us of the book of Genesis. And in fact, the opening words remind us of that fact. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And we read that all things were made through him, by him. And in him was life. And his life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And John wants us to hear this gospel and hear what he declares about Jesus in the light of creation. And he's saying this is a new creation account. And as you're reading through chapter 1, you might notice that John is careful to mark the chronology of what's happening. You see that in verse 29, in verse 35, and in verse 43 he says, The next day, the next day, the next day. What John is doing is he is narrating for us a new creation week. And he begins this account by saying, on the third day, we've come to the end of the week, the end of this new creation week. 
Now, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, what happens at the end of the, the first creation week? There's a wedding. God takes Eve from the side of Adam and he brings her to Adam. And the two become one flesh. And so it is in the new creation week. We're not surprised that at the end of this week, on the third day, once again, there is a wedding. And John is careful to let us know when this is happening. It's the end of the new creation week. And yes, once again, there is a wedding. But he also wants us to know where it happened. And he tells us twice where it happened. It happened in Cana of Galilee. He doesn't want us to miss that, the location of this wedding. Now, we find out at the end of the gospel that one of the disciples was from Cana of Galilee. And it was Nathaniel. And we heard about Nathaniel last week. Remember when Nathaniel's friend Philip came to him and said, we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel of Cana said, can anything good come from Nazareth? And remember Philip's reply to Nathaniel. Come and see. Come and see. And now Jesus is in Cana. He's in Nathaniel's hometown. And he's at a wedding. And John, the gospel writer, wants us to hold this invitation before us as we read through the gospel. Come and see. Come and see what's going to happen here in Cana. And he tells us why he has reported this account. He tells us why this happened. And it's right at the end of the account, verse 11. And this is the key verse. This, he says, the first, sign, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, we, we can say lots about weddings in the first century, and we can reflect on weddings in our own time, and we can talk about the importance of marriage and the importance of Jesus' presence in our marriage. That's all good. But John has reported this because this was a sign which Jesus performed to reveal his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So as we consider this account, we need to consider, what does this sign show us? What does it signify? What does the sign signify? We need to see something here. And if we see it, believe it. His disciples saw his glory and they believed in him. And there are two things that we need to see in this account. Two aspects of the glory of Jesus that are revealed. The first is what John has already told us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son. From the Father. This account reveals the glory of the only Son from the Father. We'll see that. But the second thing it reveals to us is that the only Son from the Father is also the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. He is the one who has come into the world which is under the judgment and curse of God to redeem his people, to redeem his bride. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So we'll see these two things. He's the only son from the father, and he is the bridegroom. And kids, as you're listening, hear what the gospel declares about who Jesus is. The only son from the father and the bridegroom. So we begin then with this revelation of Jesus as the only son from the father. And we see this in the first part of the account. And you'll notice that Mary figures quite prominently in this account. And John wants to highlight Mary's presence 
and her role in what happened at the wedding of Cana. Now we're told that Jesus and his disciples were called to the wedding. They were invited. They may have been last-minute guests. But Mary was there. She was already there. It's quite likely that she was good friends with the groom's family, and so she was there to help get things ready for the wedding. She was already at the wedding. Now, weddings in the ancient world were, and especially Jewish weddings in the ancient world, were a time of great festivity, a time of great joy and gladness, and they lasted a long time, several weeks. And here we read that they ran out of wine during the wedding celebration, the wedding feast. Now, we can imagine in our own context, in our own time, if you, at the wedding reception, if they ran out of food, you know, sometimes they do the buffet, and I always find that, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're one of the last tables to get called. I'm always kind of hoping, like, yeah, and then, like, nope. But just imagine, you're, you know, after table eight goes up there, they're like, we're sorry, tables nine to 12, there's, there's no more food. Well, that would be a bit of a drag, yeah. It would be an embarrassment for the families involved. That's true. But in the ancient world, and especially in a Jewish context in the first century, to, want, to run out of wine wasn't just simply an embarrassment. It wasn't just simply the result of, of bad planning. Because in that context, to run out of wine was actually a great dishonor to the family. And it was the groom's family, it was the groom who was responsible to supply the wine. It was a great dishonor to him, to the family, And it was actually a breach of trust within the wider community. In fact, if you ran out of wine at a wedding, the guests at your wedding could sue you. They could take you to court for that. That's how serious it was. Now also, as you read through scripture, we find again and again that wine is, it's a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of the joy and gladness of his salvation. And weddings were a time when the people feasted and drank wine in the light of God's blessing and goodness, in the light of the joy of his salvation. The implication is, if you run out of wine, the wedding has now come under God's judgment. He's removed his blessing. The joy of his salvation has been removed. And so what the groom has done is he has brought God's judgment upon this festivity. This is why Mary comes to Jesus. She's distressed, rightly distressed about what's happened. And this is why she comes to to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. Now Jesus' response is a bit surprising. I hope you found it surprising, the way he responds to her. First of all, he says, woman. He doesn't say mom, mother. He says, woman. What does this have to do with me? And actually, the original says, Woman, what does this have to do with me and you? What does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, why does he he respond this way? Woman, what does this have to do with me and you? What does this have to do with us? Well, here's the reason. Jesus knows what he's about to do. And he is now making a very clear distinction between his relationship with his mother and his relationship with God the Father. And the reason he speaks to her this way is to make this clear distinction between his human relationship with her and his divine relationship with God the Father. 
Now, up until this time, Jesus has been working as a carpenter. This is a trade that he learned from his father. He was the carpenter's son. Up until this time, he'd been about his family business. That's the work he'd done. But now, he is about his father's business. There's a change. There's a shift in his life. Now, he is about his father's business. And the work that he is beginning now, he will carry through for the next three years. And it won't be completed until his hour comes. Notice he says that. My hour has not yet come. But it is coming. And today at this wedding, I am beginning the work that my father sent me to do. Now you remember that on the cross, Jesus cried out in John's gospel, it is finished. I have completed the work that he called me to do. The work of salvation, the work of redemption. It's done. That is the hour in John's gospel, the hour of Jesus' death, when he completed the work his father sent him to do. But now at the wedding, he's beginning his work. And he says to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me and you? The implied answer is nothing. I'm about my father's work now. This has nothing to do with you and me. It's not a rude response. He's just letting her know that now is the time. Now I'm about my father's business. Now this is important for us to hear, and especially those of you who may come from a Roman Catholic background. Note well what Jesus says to his mother here. The work of salvation, the work of redemption, the work that my father has sent me to do. What does that have to do with me and you? And the answer is nothing. It has nothing to do with me and you. It has everything to do with me and my father. This is my father's work. Now, whatever our, whatever our church background, Protestant, Evangelical, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Pentecostal, I know we've all come here down different roads, Whatever our background, we need to also notice how Mary responds to this. Because she understands the response that Jesus gave her. She knows, yes, now you're about your father's, your, your father's business. It's begun. The work that he sent you to do. And so she just simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. He's about his father's business. Do whatever he tells you. That's, that's Mary's word to us. Do whatever he tells you. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Listen to him. Do whatever he tells you. And there's a question for each one of us. And just think of your relationships, especially with unbelievers, whether at work or in your family, among your friends. Do you know and trust the Lord Jesus enough to be able to say to them, do whatever he tells you? Listen to him. Do what he says. Trust in his word. Follow him. Then John tells us what Jesus then did. He tells us about his instructions. I'm just going to reread this for us. Verses 6 to 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, water jar, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine, the finest wine, the best wine, until now. Notice that the servants who did whatever Jesus told them to do, they saw what he did. They had insight. They could see the sign, the miracle. This is the one who makes water into wine. Jesus' interaction with his mother reveals that he is the only son from the father. It's his glory that's revealed by this sign. But turning water into wine, and Jesus' provision of wine at this wedding, reveals that he's not only the son from the father, he's also the groom, the bridegroom. Again, in the ancient world, in the first century, it was the groom who supplied the wine to the wedding. And at this wedding, Jesus is the one who supplied the wine. He's the groom. And as we think about the failure of the, of the groom at that wedding who didn't supply the wine, we're reminded of the first groom, of the first Adam. Think of that first wedding, the first groom, the first Adam. Remember what happened. He disobeyed God's commandment. He ate from the tree. He took his wife and they hid in the, they, they hid in the bushes. And the Lord walked in the garden and he called them, Adam, where are you? And then asked him, did you eat from the tree? Did you eat from the tree? Now his response should have said, yes, I did. But he doesn't say that. He says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. In other words, the woman that you gave me, it's your fault, you gave me this woman, she gave me the the fruit. And then I ate it. But scripture is clear that the responsibility of this act of disobedience falls on Adam. All have sinned in Adam. The first bridegroom brought sin and judgment and God's curse into the world. And here we're at a wedding. And there's no wine. This is a wedding that's under God's judgment. And it reminds us of the groom who brought God's judgment, God's curse, brought sin into the world. But there's a new groom that arrives. Now, Jesus is going to go on to say, I have not come into the world to judge the world. He didn't come to that wedding to judge the wedding. He came to that wedding to save it, to supply the wine. That wedding is a picture of the world. It's a picture of our lives. We are are already under God's judgment. We're already condemned. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. And so he comes as the bridegroom to this wedding to supply the wine, to give wine in abundance. And the wine itself signifies two things. The gift of the wine, the gift of the bridegroom, the Son of God. It signifies the washing of our sin. He purifies his bride. He cleanses us by his blood. And it signifies his grace, his life. It signifies the gift of the Spirit. But first of all, it signifies the washing of his blood, the gift of this wine. That's why it's significant that we're told it was six water jars. There were six water jars there which were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, those six water jars in the home were a daily reminder of our sinfulness, of our fallenness, of the need for purification. 
And those that lived in this home, every day they would, they would wash themselves. They would go through these ceremonial cleansings, these ritual washings, as a sign that they needed purification, that they needed cleansing. But the cleansing that they offered was superficial. Yes, it wash, you wash your hands with this water. You may wash your feet with this water. But the problem isn't that we have dirty hands and dirty feet. The problem is the filth of sin in our hearts. That's the cleansing that we need. And the water from those six water jars could never cleanse sin. They simply pointed to the need for cleansing. And notice that on this occasion, those water jars are empty. It's a sign that there's no ritual washings. There's no... no Religious practices that are going to redeem you, save you. Those empty water jars needed to be filled, and they needed to be filled with the wine that only Christ could offer. And we know, and we're reminded every Sunday, that wine is a sign, it's a symbol of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ which cleanses us from our sin. And some of you have come here this morning, and you... You are fighting sin and temptation in your life, and you are struggling with sin. And for you, the struggle isn't just simply that you're doing things you don't want to do. I've done it again. I've sinned again. It's not just the action. You know that deep down you're a sinner. And it's not just that you want to change what you're doing. You know you need to be changed. You know you need to be cleansed. You need to be purified. And here is the bridegroom who supplies the wine. Who lays down his life. Who shed blood. Cleanses us from our sin. And if you've come here this morning and and you you know the filth of your own heart. You know that you're a sinner. You you know the weight of, of the guilt of your sin. I want you to hear what John says in 1 John 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You don't just need a ritual hand washing. You need to be cleansed all the way down. You need a pure heart. And the blood of Jesus cleanses you from your sin. And some of us who know that, some of us who believe that, I hope... Most of us here know that and believe that. Even so, we go through times where we doubt that. Where our own hearts accuse us. Where we listen to the accusations of our enemy. We doubt the cleansing. But the master of the feast, he, he took, he took the, the wine and he tasted it. And again, that's why Sunday by Sunday we come to this table. We taste the wine. It's an affirmation, it's a confirmation that yes, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. So our Lord cleanses us from our sins. And think of it this way, we read this at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, that wonderful vision of the future wedding banquet. And you can just look at it there at the front of your worship booklet. What does it say? It was given to her. It was given to her to wear fine linens, bright and pure. It was given to her. 
Now, this is the amazing thing about Jesus, our bridegroom, the Son of God. In our, in our context, usually it's the case that the bride goes out and buys her own dress. It's a big deal. You get the bridesmaids with you, you go out, multiple fittings, just the right dress. We can't buy ourselves the right dress. No money in the world. But the bridegroom gives us the dress. It was given to her to be closed. He gives us the dress. He clothes us. And then not only that, he supplies the wine at the reception. And the wine is not just simply a sign of his blood which cleanses us from our sin. It's a sign of his grace, his salvation, his love, and the Spirit. And here we need to listen to John the Baptist again. Remember what he said when he first, in, he first speaks up. And John says, John the Baptist is the witness. He's the witness to the light. He's the witness. And so as we begin the Gospel of John, we're listening for him. What's he going to say? What's the witness going to say? And the first thing that John the Baptist says is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes on to say, I baptize you with water. But that's not the cleansing you need. That's not the gift you need. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ takes away our sin. He gives us the Spirit. And then as we read on in the next chapter, John chapter 3, John the Baptist appears again. And he's rejoicing. And why is he rejoicing? I rejoice because I hear the voice of the bridegroom. And then he goes on to say, and the bridegroom, he gives the spirit without measure. And that abundance of wine at that wedding was a sign that the, that the son, the bridegroom, gives the spirit without measure. And so John then says, now my joy is complete. I must decrease. He must increase. In a wedding, in a, in a marriage, there is a, a new covenant that's formed. And the bride and the groom, they say to one another, I am yours and you are mine. We sang it this morning. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And the Lord Jesus has come to us and he has said, you are mine. And he says, I take everything that's yours. I take your sin. I take God's wrath on your sin. I take your judgment. I take your shame, your sorrow. It's mine. You are mine, and I am yours, he says. Receive my life. Receive my love. Receive the Spirit. And yesterday, yes, it was Halloween, okay. It's also Reformation Day. It's the day when we remember Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the, the door, the church door in Wittenberg. And Luther wrote quite beautifully about, yes, the doctrine of justification by faith. And that was one of the, the great messages of the Reformation. We are justified by faith alone. We trust in Christ. And he gives us his righteousness. But Luther didn't primarily see that in, in legal terms. Okay, I'm guilty, and Christ has come, and he has pardoned my sin and given me his righteousness. Luther saw it in marital terms. He said, if we want to know what justification by faith is about, think of it in terms of marriage. Christ is our bridegroom. He takes what is ours. 
and he gives us what is his. I just want to quote him. This is what he says in his wonderful little book called The Freedom of the Christian. Christ takes our condemnation, our sin, our death. He gives us his righteousness, his life, his salvation. And then Luther says this. His righteousness is greater than the sins of all men. His life is stronger than death. His salvation more invincible than hell. Believers, therefore, by means of the pledge of their faith. And this is the last word of this account. His disciples believed in him. Those of you who believe in him. Believers, because of our faith, are free in Christ, our bridegroom. Free from all sin. Secure against death and hell. And we're endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of Christ, our bridegroom. Don't leave here this morning without the assurance that you have the life, the salvation, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples believed. They simply trusted. In a sense, it's just saying yes. Yes to our fiancé. We say yes. Now, the disciples already believed. They were following him. But John says they believed because their faith in Jesus was growing deeper. They came to a deeper faith, a deeper knowledge. And so it is for each one of us. As we abide in the salvation, the life, the grace... As we are filled with the Spirit, we come to a deeper trust in our Lord and our Savior. And the fruit of that is joy. That's why John the Baptist says, my joy is now complete. And we find that as we abide in our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, we abide in his joy. And I want to conclude with that. The joy of the Lord. Wine is a sign of the joy of the Lord, of gladness in the Lord, of his blessing. And we know that joy. We've received it. We've received that wine. We've tasted that wine. And we're entering now into a time which has already been hard. It's been hard in Canada. It's been hard in Toronto. And now today, the day, today is going to be an hour shorter than it was yesterday. It's going to get dark an hour earlier. The days are getting shorter. The weather is getting colder. Our leaders are telling us we need to make sure we don't spend time with people, avoid contact, calling us to be alone. So we're entering into a, an, an even darker, more difficult season than we've already been in. And some of us may, even, even if by disposition... And having abided in God's goodness and grace, we haven't experienced depression or anxiety before. Some of us are going to face that over the next few months, over the next few weeks. And this morning, I want to remind us that we know the joy of the Lord. We know what it means when it says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, our Lord provided 600 liters of wine for this couple. That's a lot of wine. It was the best wine ever made, ever tasted. You can't drink that wine alone. It's to be shared. 
We know the joy of the Lord. We share in the joy of the Lord. And we share the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord just isn't simply happy feelings. That's not the joy of the Lord. He is our joy. We sang it this morning. He's the dear desire of every nation. The joy of every longing heart. He is our joy. To know him is to know joy. And joy is a God-given reality. We enter into joy. And it's a a God-commanded activity. A God-commanded activity. We rejoice. And it's a shared activity. And as the days get darker and colder, and we go into a time where people are going to be isolated and lonely. And loneliness was already a plague on this city. A third of this city, people live alone. And we're being told, you need to stay alone. As we enter into this time, as those who know the joy of the Lord, we're called to share that joy. And it's a God-commanded activity. And it looks like what this wedding looked like. We feast together. We rejoice together. Now, even on Sundays, we have an opportunity. We gather together for worship in the morning. We come back in the evening. Sunday afternoons can be a time where, even in small groups, but we gather together and we share in the joy of the Lord. And we rejoice together. And we eat and we drink together. So we need to be quite committed over the next few weeks and months to rejoicing together, sharing in the joy of the Lord together, knowing the fellowship of that joy. And we spoke a few weeks ago about the the trial that we're entering into, the need for endurance. We don't want to shrink back. Remember what we read in Nehemiah chapter 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength, our strength. So as those who have received the new wine, as those who abide in the Spirit of God, who know the cleansing power and the transformative power of His blood, Let's rejoice together. And again, on this Sunday, we come to the Lord's table. Here again, we taste wine. We receive wine. That wedding happened on the third day. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Remember the evening of that day, he went to his disciples. He said to them, peace be with you. Shalom. Know the blessings of the Lord. Know the joy of the Lord. Peace I give you. And then he said, receive the Spirit. That was on the third day. That was today. Today, again, is the third day. You know, we were going out our front door this morning, which was unique because normally we go out our back door. But uh, the city came and dug up our driveway and um, made a mess of things and then did a great job of cleaning things up. But we can't park in our driveway, so we're parked down the street. We came out our front door. As we're going out our front door, my daughter Leah said, people will see us dressed up. They'll think we're going to a wedding. Interesting comment, Leah. And I thought about it. I said, actually, we are. We are going to a wedding. We go to a wedding every Sunday, and we're invited to this reception meal, this banqueting table. And yes, it's a foretaste of that future wedding banquet, when there's going to be a lot more wine than just a little cup. But for now, we have a foretaste. And it's a reminder that our heavenly bridegroom, the one who laid down his life for us, who shed blood, cleanses us from our sin, is with us. And we have received from his fullness grace upon grace. So let's come to the Lord's table now. Yes, we come in repentance and faith, but let's come this morning with joy, with gladness. For from his fullness we all receive grace upon grace. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. 
Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.